Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 117 of Yoga Land. I've got Jason back with me on the show today. We had so much fun talking. We decided, well, I decided, and he happily agreed, to talk about his favorite non-asana-related yoga books. And we talked about what he loves about them and the particular translations that he likes. I'll put all of the links to those on the show notes page. We also talked about sparkling water versus flat. I'd love to hear you weigh in on that because, I mean, I don't, I don't, get it when people don't prefer sparkling over flat. It's just not something that I can really, really understand. I'd love to know your favorite non-asana related yoga book and post it on Instagram with the hashtag Yogaland Stories. I think it would be really cool for us to share all of our favorite books. Jason is about to embark on like basically a world tour. And if you can hear from the sound of my voice, I'm tired already just thinking about it. We had such a wonderful family summer with him mostly at home and it was pretty phenomenal, but you got to get back out there. So he is heading to Copenhagen, London, Belfast, Maui for our retreat. I will be there too with Sophia and we'll be doing a live podcast. There's still a couple spots left for that retreat if you don't want to stay on the retreat site, like if you want to stay in town. There are more details about that on Jason's Instagram feed. Then he goes in November to Syracuse, New York, Seattle, Washington, November 9th through 11th, then to Hong Kong for module one of his 300 hour training. Then back to London, London, London. And that's where I'm going to stop for now. Anyway, if you want more details on any of these locations, if you want the date and the registration and what exactly he's teaching, go to our schedule page at jasonyoga.com slash schedule. Okay, enjoy the interview and post your books. Hi, Jason. Hey, Andrea. Do you have a beverage? Yeah. Okay. And it's not sparkly like yours is. (laughs) I offered you one. I know, but what did I say? I said it's going to make me hiccup. Yeah, it might make me hiccup Carbonation too, but... does that to me. I'm not super into carbonation. Oh my gosh. I never knew this. Well, how did you not know this? I don't know. Okay, we go to a restaurant and the waiter says... I thought that's because you're Would you thrifty. like... No. Well, that... Yeah, this part. I'll drink tap. I'm from the Midwest. I'll drink Lake Erie water. That's what I thought it was all about. You don't want to pay for sparkles. Of course I don't want to pay for sparkles. But you know where we live. They have free sparkles all over the place. Yeah, it's true. Flat. 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 Well, I think this is just showing my narcissism in our relationship. Because as you know, I am obsessed with sparkling water. I know. I know that about you. How do you not know this about me? I just assume that because I am, you are too. Because we're exactly alike. We're not exactly alike. We're a lot alike. We're a lot alike. Yeah. We have some small differences. I don't know how we get through this difference on the water issue. I, I mean, I do either. like I do like an occasional sparkling water, but but not while I'm doing a big high stakes interview. It's true. This is like one of the most important interviews of your life. It's and been a while. Yesterday, I was like, "Hey, when are we getting the band back together? Do I still have a? <laughs> <laughs> am I still invited to be on your? Do they still show? need a bass player?" Or is it just... I would not be the bass player. You wouldn't? Oh, well, you, you know what? I don't drummer? even want to... No, let's, let's fast forward to the next part of this conversation. Oh my gosh. So many fascinating things about this conversation. I told you earlier, everything was getting on my nerves. <laughs> I'm totally in the mood to get on your nerves right I now. I can tell. I'm, in the, I'm having a hard time. 
So I'm in the, <laughs> I'm in the mood to, to get on your nerves. Uh-huh. But first I have to do Great. something. Just try to dial it back. So today I'm going to hit you with a... You hit me. I'm hitting you with my best shot. I'm such a dork right now. This is something that I've wanted to talk about for a while with you. And I don't know if I've said this to you. I've definitely said it on the podcast, so hopefully I've said it to you. But I feel sometimes that people misinterpret you and your teaching to be only physical. It's laughable. I know. They don't know the real me. It seriously gets on my nerves, talking about getting on your nerves. Anyway, no, I I think that because... I had a teacher in a teacher training tell me that my (laughs) classes were just physical. Wow. Yeah. Oh, like one of your students or one of your teachers? My students. Right. Exactly. My teachers would never say this. Okay. Clearing that up. Good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I I think that sometimes people misconstrue your emphasis on anatomy. Like Uh you definitely in the last five to seven years, that's something that's been like a real genuine interest of yours. Yeah. So I think that sometimes people misconstrue. Can I pause you for a second? Sure. This is going to be sound weird. I'm actually not that interested in anatomy. I'm interested in anatomy insofar as I think that it fleshes out and articulates good biomechanics that help us do the yoga practice effectively and efficiently for a long period of time. I'm not that interested in anatomy as like this isolated subject matter. Yeah. I'm not really even interested in the physical body as its own distinct subject matter. I'm interested in it to the degree that it supports the other dimensions of this practice. Right. Right. It's also that I I got a little pigeonholed, you know, and I somewhat pigeonholed myself because I became a bit of a vinyasa yoga teacher that was a stickler for technique Mm -hmm. and yet not like a stickler for technique, but not, not super, super crazy and heavy handed about technique. Because as you know, I am an extreme pragmatist. Mm -hmm. So technique is important to me and anatomy is important to me because an, an understanding of anatomy and just how things work together is the underpinning for the biomechanical rationale of how to use our body well. Right, right, So I'm interested in wellness and I'm interested in effectiveness and I'm interested in sustainability because those things are really important so that we can do this practice for a long period of time and do Mm -hmm. it well. Mm -hmm. But but does that make sense? Totally. I I mean, I actually, this is one thing I do know about you. I didn't know about your non-interest in sparkly water, but I did know this about you, which is far more important. Far more important. Um, And that's why I wanted to have this conversation, um, which is I wanted to talk a little bit about your favorite non-asana yoga books. Sure. I think I know some of what they are, but you and I have actually never... I've never gotten to like sit in on any of your lectures or been in the room with you. So pretend for now yeah that that's the situation that um okay. yeah i'll tell you some of my some of what i draw on and do, we're going to take modern thrillers out of the equation because that's actually what i enjoy reading well and you and i actually talk about those because i and read, we like read we them like now good too. literature yes absolutely. although you know what mm. i like fiction way more than you like fiction i'm trying to like fiction you don't more. have to try to like fiction i think i do yeah that might be a whole other podcast. That's a different thing. So I like books. I do like fiction. I just, I'm very picky. Yeah. Am, f- yeah. I okay. Fair very, enough. very, very picky. I like, I mean, you know, I loved. Uh, see, I like plot and setting. 
Yeah, me too. So, so, so for me, it's pretty easy. You know what I mean? Like I can't read bad writing. Me neither. But like even average to good writing that has like good plot and good setting, I I'm a sucker for it. it. I can't do because it. Because I'm kind of a, when it comes to books, it, we're going to get to the topic at hand in a moment. But when it comes to books, like I really am a leisure reader. When I was younger, I felt like I had to read to improve my understanding of sure. life and existence. Sure. Or, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then I remember literally you were, you and I were, uh, I remember exactly what happened. You and I were on our honeymoon and we were staying at this place and I finished this like painful tome that I was reading. And I went into the room where they had just like a bunch of books and of course, this was like a resort place. So all the books they had were like these cheesy paperback thrillers. And I picked up a, what was it? It was like, it was a Robert Ludlum book. It was the original Born Identity. And I was like, oh my God, am I really going to read this? And Is it I, Ludlum or Ludlow? I don't know. Okay. I don't either. I don't know. But anyways, Born Identity. I picked up, I read that whole thing in a day. I bet it was great. And it was like the greatest six hour read I've ever had. And I was, and I just had this moment. I'm like, this is what I'm going to read now. Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Like yeah. I don't have to intellectually prove myself. I actually kind of love the escapism of this. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that you are rubbing off on me, which is not a bad thing because I think if you, we read at night now to go to bed and you can't be trying to stuff your brain full no. of facts before you go to I bed, which is how no, I like to read. I can't read business stuff and I can't read yoga stuff at night. Yeah. It's actually, it's way too stimulating. So the books I'll talk about now, the non-asana yoga based books, yeah. which I will talk about and I'll talk about the, the elements of them that inspire and intrigue me and motivate me as a practitioner and an educator. But I'll say, I can't read this stuff at night. I can't read this stuff before I'm going to bed because it actually is super stimulating to me. So let's start with start with the beginning, which is, my God, the Upanishads. I really, really love the Upanishads. Mm. And I, sh I should rephrase that. I love Eknath Eshwaran. Mm. I love his interpretation of the Upanishads. For all of, like, all of Eknath, E-A-K-N-A-T-H is his first name. Yeah, I believe he's passed away, but. Eshwaran, E-A-S-W-A-R-A-N, Eknath Eshwaran. All of his interpretations, I don't actually know if they're translations or just interpretations, of the Dhammapada, uh, which is Buddhist I think stuff. it's both. I think it's both the translation translator and the, inter like the... But I don't know, because I don't know if he ch actually translated them from the original language. But regardless, regardless. His interpretation of the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, and the Dhammapada are just unbelievably good. He also has a bunch of his own writings, and I believe that he was the lead meditation teacher at a, I was going to say a resort, but I don't think it was a resort, like, yeah, or a meditation center, I think actually in the States for the later part hmm. of his life. Well, we're going to have to go research yeah. it because I've read his Anyways, um, I just, version of the Gita. Yeah, too. it's so... It's one of these things where I find that his his lecture notes, his introductions are so accessible and so tangible and so immediate without in any way being depleted of content. Mm -hmm. He's able to write in this very clear, articulate, relevant language that I think infuses the modern reader with the traditional understanding of the content. And mm -hmm. that, that, that just has to be so difficult to do. 
But so the thing that I really love about Upanishads and the reason that I have them included in my teacher training programs, even my 200 hour program, is that the Upanishads really give the the cosmic vision of unity and they and they sort of deal with they deal with the big questions of existence, which is where do I come from? What am I supposed to do while I'm here? what gives me a sense of purpose and what happens after I die, mm-hmm. right? And so these aren't, the Upanishads, those of you that haven't read them, they aren't a guide, right? They aren't a guide, but they are, they're articulations of experiences experienced. They're more like a, a prose, descriptive, poetic language around existential experience. Yeah. 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 And where I'm sorry, I You know, I'm not Mr. Scholar, so don't no, ask me too I many know. technical questions. I have I have research for that. I have worked on so many yoga timelines, edited so many, and I still like forget the order of So where do you remember where the The first. Okay. So the Upanishads are re- really the written distillations of the teachings that come from the Vedas. Right. Okay. So Upanishads is really the the first written cosmic vision that describes the phenomenon of transcendent existence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, next in order, and you know, the, it's Bhagavad Gita. And when I, but when I first read the Bhagavad Gita, I I was so angry. I was I so annoyed. I was so frustrated. I read it. Yeah. Because I read it in a social justice context, right? I read, I read it, it same in college. I read, yeah, yeah. I had same. a I had a class on Gandhi, which was a really cool class. And the professor, oh, I'm f- spacing on his name, but was really just wonderful and really lovely. This was at San Francisco State University, and yeah, so really awesome professor, and a class on Gandhi. And so we read Gandhi's autobiography and a bunch of other things. We read it. Read it in. We read the Bhagavad Gita in the in the context of social justice, mm-hmm. right? Which it's one of these things when you, any document you read, the context in which you are reading that document is going to affect your experience of the writing and the the content. So from a social justice perspective, let's, let's be straight. We can still make some real harsh criticisms of the Bhagavad Gita. And I would be happy to do that. But- Well, let's just say this. Talk about how you interpreted it at that time from that lens and then talk well, it's, about it's, it, it's a interpreting very, it from a different sure. lens. Sure. It's a very clear justification for so, social stratification and the caste system. Right. It's very, very, very straightforward. And, you know, you and I come from a world of or at least the, the cultural belief in class mobility. Mm-hmm. And that although there are classes, there's a certain underlying equal humanity underneath that underpins all those classes and that people can rise through stations and fall through stations based on merit and will. Right. That's what we Which is a bit of an illusion, right? I mean I don't And that's what well, that's the context we were raised in. Yes. Yes. That's the context we are raised in. Now how true is that? I don't know. Things are a little bit more complicated than that. But yeah. we're just we're just on a podcast here. <laughs> <laughs> we're not gonna go down that sad, sad road yeah. right now. Yeah. We're not. But in the context of reading it as a yoga practitioner, I think that 
you know, that we're really seeing it as the war within, right? And, and it's not so much that the Bhagavad Gita as a whole is, well, I shouldn't say that. I was about to say it's not that the Bhagavad Gita as a whole is incredibly useful. It is incredibly useful. Um, but for me, it's that there are many specific timeless cross-cultural teachings that stem from that body of work uh, that make it really super important. The other thing is, you know, we were saying earlier is that I, I like a good piece of fiction. Mm-hmm. What do you have in the Bhagavad Gita? You have a thriller. Yeah, no, it's a great story. It's like, you know, the first chapter can can really sort of throw people because it's it, it can be so so sort of technical with the settings. So you can skip that and just get a sense. But um, one of the things, one of the takeaways that I love about the Bhagavad Gita is that the entire education, the entire experience starts in a state of confusion and despair, which means that confusion and despair is fertile ground, that it is a normal, natural, necessary phase of life. It's never comfortable. But I think that oftentimes we can think that confusion is an inherently bad thing. And it's not an inherently bad thing. Uh, We can think that despair is an inherently bad thing. And it's not an inherently bad thing. It's unpleasant. Mm -hmm. Both of them are unpleasant. Mm -hmm. I don't like either either of those states of being. Mm -hmm. But both of those are not only normal parts of life, but they are the groundwork for deeper somewhat forced explorations of the self, Mm -hmm. you know, so they're springboards. If you let them be, Mm -hmm. those are springboards Mm -hmm. in which case they are, they are a good thing. Yeah. You know, other elements of the Bhagavad Gita that I think are poignant and timeless, right? We have these conversations about doing your work and letting go of the results. Mm -hmm. Another thing that just seems so implausible, you know, but the teaching is so, is so valuable. Right. Yeah. And there's, and there's, you know, people will, will sort of ask like, well, how and when do I incorporate these teachings in a class? And it's like every class I teach, right. Every class I teach at some phase, I tell my students, look, everything that you are really proud of from today, everything that went really well, every posture that you felt good about, let it go. Mm-hmm. Let it go. Mm-hmm. It's over. No one, it doesn't matter. No one cares. Mm-hmm. Anything that you struggled with, anything that you got annoyed with, anything that you got frustrated by, anything that made you feel bad about yourself or your body, stop. Mm-hmm. It's over. Mm-hmm. Let it go. Mm-hmm. Right? So again, these, these are the fundamental teachings that are imbued in a yoga class and they have their origin in these texts. Mm-hmm. I think that that reminder of do your work and, you know, let go of the fruits I think when you first, well, for me, when I first read it or learned about that concept in yoga, it seemed a little patronizing. Yeah. It seemed a little bit like, uh uh-huh, sure. Yeah. But now I see it as so self-compassionate. Yes. I I, I completely, it's like, I see it so differently. And so when I find myself struggling with it, like if it comes up for me, like if I have to remind myself of that, I actually think about the way I would talk to someone else about it. For example, a kid, our daughter, right? What do we always say to her? Just try, just participate, just engage. We just want her to engage in the process of life, of anything that she's trying. We just want her to do it. 
we don't care about, we don't care about the outcome. She cares about the outcome already. And if you're overly hung up about an outcome at a certain phase, you're going to stop trying. Right. If you don't have the capacity to let it all go, you're going to give up. Right. You're not going to try the new thing because your ego is going to be too brittle to deal with it. Right. You know? Yeah. There's, again, there's countless other components that, you know, that I contemplate and I use as focal points for my teaching and my practice all the time from the text. Another thing that comes up for me is early on, there's a discussion of a yogi is even-minded in the experience of pleasure and pain, even-minded in the experience of hot and cold. And, And to me, this sort of gets to, I think there's a lot of people that do yoga and even more people that don't do yoga, but know what they think someone who does yoga is like. Right, right, right. Right. And they think it's this sort of banal world where you no longer have thoughts and feelings and emotions or pleasures or pain. Yeah. There's not the, at no phase is Arjuna asked not to feel pleasure or pain. The teaching is to be even minded in the presence of pleasure and pain. He's not asked to not experience hot and cold. He's asked to be even-minded in the experience of hot and cold. Right. So really what it's all about is it's about governing your reaction, not having that impetus to react. Right. Right. So this is another thing where I remember I was in a cab. Actually, it was a it was an Uber going in London, going from teacher training to uh, going to sparring at this the place that I, I spar there. And the name of the place that I spar there is called Fight Zone. And the guy who picked me up is like, wait, I'm picking you up from a yoga place. <laughs> and I said, yes. And he said, I'm taking you to a place that's called Fight Zone. And I said, yes. He's very observant. He was observant. Driver. <laughs> right? And he said, he said, well, you know, I don't understand. I said, what, <laughs> what don't you understand? And he said, well, I mean, you do yoga all the time, right? You're doing yoga. So you must be like super relaxed. And, and it's like, like oh, you don't have no. an impulse right, to right, engage right, right. in that way. No. So, you know, I just, we had an interesting conversation about the totality of being a human and that you cultivate one aspect of your being doesn't mean that you don't also cultivate another aspect of your being. And really in both of those particular situations, the training is the same. Mm -hmm. The training is to not overreact when you're experiencing a difficult moment and actually see your way through with some sanity and grace and skill, Mm -hmm. you know? So, so all of these things are, again, these are things that when I first read this, I didn't see for me how poignant that they would become. Now, do other philosophical, spiritual, and religious belief systems have similar teachings? Yep. (laughs) Of course they do. You know, of course they do. But these are the ones that, you know, that, that more readily fit into this subject matter. Yeah. I mean, the other, this is a very, you know, blatantly obvious, but just the other way to, to describe it is it's not that the writing was not a yogi doesn't feel hot or cold. Right. Like you're going to feel gonna the feel hot. It. You're going to feel the cold. You're going to feel the hot emotions, the cool emotions. You're going to feel the despair. You're going to feel the frustration. Thank God. Because if you didn't feel those, you, you also wouldn't feel the joy. Exactly. You know, so it's not that you don't feel those things. It's that you become more skillful in your response to those things. Yes. Internally and hopefully externally too. If we, if you step back and you look at the lesson of that book, by the way, that book is also to me 
the most important guide for teacher-student relationship that I've ever come across. Mm, Say more about that. Okay, so it gives, like, Krishna is the ultimate teacher because that book could be two chapters long if the student agreed with the teacher, (laughs) okay? It could be the setup, and then it could be Arjuna being like, no, I'm bummed. I don't want to do my job because my job involves not only killing people, but killing people I'm kind of into. So can we just, can I actually not do my job even though it's not my job? Right. Right. And then a teacher's like, nah, sorry, bro. It's your job. So you got to do it. Okay. Right. 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 Done. It's over. Right. That, but that wouldn't, that wouldn't lead to a very compelling epic novel, let alone a decent teacher, a decent teacher. Yeah. So what does he do? He, at the, at every chapter, at the beginning of the chapter, he says, forget about the last chapter. Forget about those things I was telling you that was important. This is what's really important. And then he goes through an, another long set of reasons why Arjuna should go do his bleeping job, right? And then they go through this long conversation and at the end of every chapter. Arjuna's like, yeah, but I still don't want to do it. And so again, we have another chapter. He's like, all right, all right, I forget the, the Arjuna or Krishna says, oh, forget that chapter. Forget what I was just telling you. So my point on this is, the teacher, Krishna, continues to make the same case, but but every chapter in a different way, so that he because he keeps trying to change his tact until he finds a way to communicate the teaching to his student. Yeah. He doesn't keep saying the same thing and be like, oh my God, this 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 student is beyond, is just beyond. Forget it. He just continues to t- change his angle. He's like until, the ultimate persuader. Yeah. So he, and the thing is, he's only trying to, he doesn't, there's, there's nowhere in there where Krishna doesn't want Arjuna to experience what he's experiencing. He totally makes space for Arjuna to experience whatever he's experiencing. He just wants him to do the job nonetheless, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's like our kid brushing the teeth. I was just okay? thinking of the same darn thing. It's okay if you don't want to brush your teeth. Mm-hmm. I understand. Mm-hmm. Can I be honest with you? Mm-hmm. I don't want to brush my teeth all the time mm-hmm. either. Yep. Okay? But I got to do it anyways. Yep. So you know what I mean? He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't, in my reading, make an argument based on personality, opinion, or feeling. Right. He just sort of says, look, okay, got it. I totally get it. Yep. You got it. Uh Uh-huh. Exactly. Now please go do it. Mm -hmm. You know, so to me, to me, this is like, uh, for me, a very poignant set of lessons. It's interesting. Just when you were saying that about the way that he's instructing is just the, it's like, there's a consistency in the instruction. Yeah. And it just, it reminds me actually of yoga teaching and meditation teaching and what we do when we're meditating. Like when our mind inevitably trails off, which it does almost immediately over and over and over again. Do we, do we stomp our feet and go, God, I'm so terrible at this. Or, you know, do we say like, forget it. I'm just not going to do this. It just, I can't meditate. Right. I mean, a lot of times we do, but really, you know, the idea is to recognize and come back, recognize and come back recognize, right. stay the course, just keep the discipline up, keep the practice up, just keep moving forward. Anyway, yeah, that's just absolutely. made me think of that.
Next one that comes up, obviously, Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Now, I got to be honest, I, the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, they, I don't resonate with them nearly as much as I resonate with the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads. I can think about it like this. They're all unbelievably valuable contributions to humanity. But I prefer a couple of them more than mm-hmm. the others of them. Mm-hmm. Okay, just just based on writing style and appeal and and the way in which I feel like I integrate the content, right? In terms of understanding the yamas and the niyamas, pretty straightforward stuff, super valuable, kind of a very basic ethical code that is not dissimilar from every other normal basic ethical code, yeah. right? So I don't find the guidance or of the yamas and the niyamas to be n- that novel for me. You know what I mean? Be- because again, I-, I just feel like they're very important things. Don't get me wrong. Sure. And I am not perfect at any of them, right? So they are points of contemplation and there are guide points. But I feel like I, I already, like I knew that being nonviolent and I knew that not hoarding and I knew that telling the truth and I knew that conserving my energy and so forth and so on were valuable things for a human prior to doing yoga. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So again, it's not like those elements were that new to me. They're just packaged in a language that's different. And again, I still find them valuable, but I don't find them valuable to the same degree for me personally, in terms of their guidance that I have those other texts. And then when he goes on and he and he articulates the the eight limb structure, where you not just have yama, niyama, but you also have asana, pranayama, pratyahara, dharana, dhyana, and samadhi. Those are all really interesting, interesting, interesting dynamics. And asana, pranayama, pratyahara, like these are overt physical phenomenon. Dharana and dhyana, different stages of meditation. Samadhi, to be honest, I don't, I don't know that I can know. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so I find that like this chain the eight limbs of Patanjali's articulation, I think is this really beautiful model for existence and for essentially rolling back samskaras. But I just, I just doesn't get me super excited most of the time. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like it's super, super, super interesting, super valuable. I think it's a structure and a model that I contemplate and I use and I I integrate, but in terms of my daily takeaways, like I find I am pretty much daily thinking in my teaching about the Bhagavad Gita and its lessons more so Hmm. than I am thinking about how Patanjali set up a model. And that's not to say that I think one is more valuable than another. It's that I resonate with one structure more than I resonate with the other structure. I think the other thing about Patanjali is many of the other components are intellectually impenetrable to me. Yeah. You know, and this is like, I can think like kind of okay. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like I have pretty good critical thinking skills. I'm pretty good at discernment, but there are just pretty big parts, especially the cosmology of 
And I'm not that educated in the Samkhya school. And you kind of really have to understand the Samkhya school in order to understand the backbone and the cosmology of Patanjali's teaching. And it's just intellectually really, really hard for me to deal with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, it just is. Um, The only American teacher who I've ever come across who I would like to learn the sutras from, who seems to have just a very deep understanding, but accessible ability to talk about them is Kate Holcomb. Sure. And, you know, she learned about them directly from TKV Desikachar. Like yeah. she sat at his feet for years and he, and that was really something that he loved. So there's something interesting to me about this, which is there's a, there's an intermediary there. Now this can be said for pretty much any learning experience, but you have the sutra and then you have someone like TKV Desikachar and that and TKV Desikachar is then going through the process of interpreting, digesting, assimilating, and then communicating. So I think that if I had ever had the grace to be in that experience too, that those teachings would probably resonate that's, more powerfully. That's what me. I always wanted. And I've had really good, I mean, I've had really good teachers of these things. Then, and again, the stuff is interesting and, and valuable to me, but but not quite as impactful as I think is it's almost it almost seems like kind of a given in contemporary yoga that the thing we're supposed to draw on it are the yoga sutras of patanjali but i think that's because for so many of us the fact that they're aphorisms like the fact that there is a way in which when you get deeper into it it is harder to interpret but there are certain things that are not as hard to interpret absolutely or so we think absolutely <laughs> anyway absolutely. you know so i think that's why it's sort of an it's sort of a nice inroad for people yeah and i guess that's a bit where i struggle with is like i was saying there are many elements of the sutras that to me are impactful and intellectually interesting and then there's other big parts of the sutras that i just really struggle with mm-hmm. i just really struggle with understanding them intellectually And I also struggle with whether or not I fundamentally believe the baseline premise that we can observe objective reality without the filter of our subjectivity. I don't know that I actually believe that to be true. So there's so, so this, I'm not saying the yoga sutras are not true. That would be ridiculous. What I'm saying is, I don't know that the fundamental premise that they're based on and the fundamental cosmology that they're based on is something in today's world that I can take in its entirety. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Richard Rosen kind of said said as much when he was on the show, which sort of blew my mind. I never, I just, I just didn't know that about, I didn't know that about Richard. So, um, you know, I didn't know that about Richard either. And the funny thing is, you know, Richard, I, I tell everyone is, has been so impactful mm-hmm. for me as a teacher. And also when I look back, Richard wasn't the primary teacher of the sutras for my, my two-year training with them. Huh. We had another philosophy teacher that came in. We had Georg come in. Okay. He taught a component of it. And then we had another teacher come in. So, so Richard, 
you know, in all of Richard's classes, or not all of Richard's classes, but many of Richard's classes, you know, he would provide the the yoga lore, uh-huh. you know, the traditional Hatha yoga lore. Yeah. But he wasn't, he was never the one that systematically taught the sutras to us. He, he, I mean, my, this going off on a tangent a little bit, but he's, he's very much the scholar. He loves the research. Yeah. He loves the yeah. research. And I totally, I totally relate to that. I think also that when you, when you are that deep into the research, when you have such a deep intellectual grasp of this content, that's actually when you start to step back and say, I don't know about this. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> this isn't just like telling people to be good to each other. Yeah. And then like, here, here you want me to sum up, you want me to sum up the Patanjali teaching? Sure. Yama. Be decent to other people. Niyama, be decent to yourself. Asana, sit down. Pranayama, slow your breath. Pratyahara, introject your sensory organs so you are less stimulated by the world around you. Dharana, focus on an object. Dhyana, observe the phenomenon that that object and you are not fundamentally separate entities. Samadhi. I don't even know. <laughs> That's kind <laughs> of what I got to in the conversation with Richard. It was just like, wait, what? Okay, it's making me want to go back and listen to that episode again so that I can that I can follow up on that conversation. So I right, so all that's super tenable. The only question is if it, with like a real intellectual understanding of again, the cosmology and the underpinning belief system that one can and should roll back all of their human filtering mechanisms to observe pure reality as it objectively is. That is a question that I think is a difficult question to sit with. Mm-hmm. And there might be a lot of listeners that are like, yeah, I don't know if we can do that. I don't know if the human brain has the capacity to do that. Mm. Or that that even that that exists, that objectivity beyond our subjective experience of it is actually a thing that exists, right? So here we are. There might be people out there listening saying, "But yeah." I wouldn't argue. I'm not going to make an argument one way or another. Mm -hmm. But the point is, is like I'm just saying that I don't know that objectivity outside of the phenomenon of subjectivity can exist. Hmm and how it would be knowable, right? Then we have to get into this, like the whole epistemology of truth and, and knowledge. So again, this is, this is where I'm saying, like, just give me the good bleeping hero story of someone that doesn't want to do their job, but then shows up and does it. <laughs> I'm just laughing, thinking about when we talked to your mom this past weekend. Uh-huh. And... She's retirement age. Mm-hmm. Is she retired? No. No. She we has a retire. job. She has a job. She loves her job. It's a good job for her because she loves animals and it has to do with animals. Talking to her on the phone the other day. She's approaching 70, you yeah. know. I mean, of course, she's just fit as a fiddle, uh-huh. really healthy, takes good yeah. care of herself. And what is what does she tell us in this most sheepish voice I've ever heard her use? Yeah. What does she tell us? She tells us she's been offered another job and she's going to take it. And I think I'm going to take it. Right. 
I won't add to my hours. Well, I will add to my hours, but just a little bit, but not on the weekend. Well, maybe on the weekend. And Jason was hysterical because it's like. We don't quit. Crandall's are workers. Uh -uh. Workers. I'm writing a blog while we're talking right now. (laughs) Last one. Cutting through spiritual materialism. This to me is like, this is a, this goes in a very different direction. So this is not one of the, one of the traditional yoga body of work. It's not in the canon. It's not in the canon. Typical canon, yeah. But there's a couple things I love about it. So cutting through spiritual materialism by Chogyang Trungpa. And... I just find that the advice that that is given in that book is incredibly valuable for all modern yoga teachers and for everyone that for everyone that deals with God, I don't even know how to phrase it. I don't I don't know how to phrase the value of that book right now. It's so terrible. I'm just realizing I've never read it. You haven't? No. <laughs> what he what essentially he says is that there is a phenomenon that he describes as spiritual materialism. Now, I don't know if he came up with this concept or not. I, I really don't know. But so we think about materialism as our desire to collect objects. And what he talks about as spiritual materialism is the desire to collect spiritual objects and spiritual teachings as a source of the the ego's insecurity and egoism, if you will. Yeah. Right. So he sort of says, right, that there is not only do we typically collect objects out of our insecurity and out of our desire and out of our need to project things to others, but that we also may do the same thing to spiritual wisdom and piety. That our spiritual wisdom might be something that sometimes we are trying to collect really as a, as a source of the ego's insecurity and vanity. Mm-hmm. Because it's a way that we justify who we are. It's a way that we justify our emotional, our intellectual, and our spiritual superiority. Yeah. And it's a way that we project ourselves to others as being of value. And it's it's just a really poignant book. I'll also say that the thing that I like about that book is it's very it's very intellectually discerning and it's not soft. Right? I mean, the, the he has a way of Cutting, th- literally, I didn't mean to use that phrase, but cutting through, through intellectual discernment, cutting through our, what he phrases uh, is our raw and rugged ego and the way that it will take nearly everything and commandeer it, even our best sense of being spiritually illuminated. There's one more that I have read. Yeah. Which is Rick Hansen's Buddha's Brain. Yeah. And also, there's a ton of other stuff. Like, we both, right, we both love Jon Kabat-Zinn stuff. I was just asking you for your, like, top, top, top line. And we can do another episode with more because I have other ones. I have my own little mini collection, too. Yeah. So I include Buddha's Brain in all my trainings. And to me, this is a big arc. 
right? It's from the Upanishads, which is the early vision of transcendent reality. All the way through the teachings, the sort of the the teachings of Bhagavad Gita, the distillation of the Yoga Sutras, and then now a much more modern and Buddhist take via cutting through spiritual materialism, and then finally this very contemporary book, Buddha's Brain, mm-hmm. right? And the thing that I really like about Buddha's Brain is I find it like so, so many other contemporary Buddhist writings, it's just smart, simple, kind, and direct. Mm, yeah. You know? It just really is. And even the the neurochemistry side of it, right? Even the neurochemistry of the side of it is relatively simple. Yeah, he does a really good job of distilling okay, it. Okay, like the best grade I ever got in a math or a science class was a B minus, okay? <laughs> so I struggle with the the neurochemistry and the neurological side of these contemporary writings on on the nervous system and spirituality and brain and neuroscience, right? There's a lot of them now. So much, yeah. Right? Because it's a really interesting contemporary field. Mm -hmm. But the way that this book is structured is just super readable and really compassionate and takes, and there are immediate takeaways. And I, I think a lot of us start to realize through this writing how and why our brain is primed to focus on negativity mm-hmm. instead of positivity mm-hmm. and what we can do about it. Yeah. You know, it just gives us some of the neurological underpinnings of why we tend to focus so much on drama, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and and it's it's kind of like, you know, sometimes relating this to asana, right? Sometimes People, when they realize their motion is restricted from the structure of their joint, they're relieved. Exactly. They're, right? That, they're I like, was so oh, relieved when I read that book. Oh, no wonder I can't do that shape. My bones don't articulate in a way that would allow my body to actually do that shape. Right. Right? Like, it's not that I'm not trying hard enough. Right. It's not that I'm not... Yeah, that I'm not applying myself correctly. It's how I am. It's how I am, <laughs> right? It's like my amazing inability to tan. Your amazing inability. Right? That's my DNA. It sure is. It's my DNA. You've seen me in the sun day after day after oh, day after goodness. day. Not ever a shade of anything. Tan. Never. Never. Just not pink. once. Just a little bit of pink. Yeah. Just a little bit of pink. Not yep. once. No. Nope. That's my chemistry. I'm yeah. not doing anything wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but you, but but again, so to the point on this, which is so important, is that people often find when they realize that there is some biological region reason that is species wide, right? That you are not going to avoid. You have you have been in the making for millions of years, and just because you do downward facing dog and lengthen your exhalations and read the Bhagavad Gita doesn't mean that you are now quickly going to transcend millions of years of human existence, okay? Or millions of years of of evolution, 
right? So again, one of the nice things about this book is that it lays out this biological case for why we tend to create suffering, mm -hmm. why we're biologically primed to these specific types of suffering that we all share. And then what are a few things that we may be able to do to mitigate that stuff? Right. I, I actually think it's overly optimistic, <laughs> to be honest. Well, you would. But I would. I would. <laughs> but but I think it's hard to make this biological case that we've been evolving to experience these, these states. And then now all you have to do is smile and they'll go away. He I mean, that, that's no, not I know, what I know, he says. I know, <laughs> no, I know there are very, <laughs> there are very good, there are very good takeaways or else I wouldn't include it. But you, you know, my, my point on this, right, yes. is that it is a very contemporary look at how we behave under certain circumstances and why and what are some things that we may be able to do to, to stem the tide of suffering. Right. There you go. Yeah. All right. We'll end on that note. Yeah. Thanks so much, Jason. Now let me go read a Lee Child book. <laughs> Jane Harper. Yeah. Come out with another book, Jane Harper, please. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening. I'll post show notes with links to the translations that Jason mentioned on yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 117. Thanks as always for your iTunes reviews. They mean so much and help other people find the podcast. And if you haven't left one and you're enjoying it, please leave one. It's super supportive for me. Okay. I think that's it until next week. Enjoy your practice. <laughs>